This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. With Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. It's the Accounting Influencers Podcast. Other podcasts are available, but who cares when you've got all the value in this one? We have a packed show coming up for you this week, and we start like we always do with the news. The news is research-based this week. There are 17 million, you heard that number right, 17 million new businesses formed this year alone. I'm going to go back on that again, 17 million. Can your firm cope with your percentage of that, your share of that? Well, we look at the data and we look at the needs of those businesses and we look to see if you're ready to help them out. And in our leader special interviews that we're doing, we've got Mark Coziel from Alineal. He's the global CEO, and uh, he's got some great things to share about what makes the good accountants great, what makes the good leaders great. He's taking over with the legacy of Terry Snyder that was running Alineal for such a long time. And these networks, associations, alliances, they look after a number of firms all over the world, have a terrific international perspective. And Mark's going to be sharing some great insights with us on what's happening in the profession. Martin, we have our usual here's what works section coming up. This is where you share practical insights on what really works for the accountants in practice. Yeah, and succession has been in crisis, in inverted commas apparently, for many years now. So surely some firms get succession right. They do, they do get succession right. So we take a look at what works for accounting firms with succession planning, whether we're talking about the young group, the young team coming through and buying you out, or whether we're talking about preparing for sale. There are clues, success leaves clues. And we've seen the successful firms, we've seen what they've done, we've packaged it up, and it's in a little section called, Here's What Works. And we've got a final interview with Darren Glanville, no stranger to the accounting profession, been in this game 20 years, and he now works at Fathom, Fathom Reporting, and we're going to be asking him what the biggest challenges accounting professionals are facing, what sectors of accounting haven't evolved as quickly as they should have, what's really working for the successful firms, and how accounting firms grow, win business, and stand out, and how that's changed over the next few years. And finally, because Fathom are in reporting, Darren's going to be sharing with us what's coming up over the next few years, as far as he can predict for accounting firms. So tune into that one as well. It's another action-packed show, Martin. Shall we get started? Let's get started. And thank you to our special sponsors, Iris Software. Martin, you saw a great video just recently from Iris, didn't you? Yeah, well, I think people don't understand about Iris is they were ahead of the game for MTD phase one because they were the first software vendor to be listed as approved by the HMRC for MTD filing. And guess what? They're fully prepared for the next. So they've got an MTD webinar on demand that you can catch up with at any time. Rob, where did they go to to see this? It's iris.co.uk forward slash MTD webinar. That stands for making tax digital for our international list and there's some great stuff there that you need to know to guide you through the whole Making Tax Digital initiative. So iris.co.uk forward slash MTD webinar. Right, Martin? That's right. So wherever you are in your journey, Iris know that they have the knowledge and tools to help you in the next steps. That's iris.co.uk forward slash MTD webinar. Welcome to our new section of the podcast. This is where we give you accounting practitioners and the fintech people that serve them a little taste of commercial acumen, business awareness, what is happening in our world and how it affects you in your day-to-day business. Martin, this is where you trawl through the many journalistic publications and media outlets to see what is current and what is trending. What have you come across this week? An article from a wonderful gentleman who I know called Daniel Hood. 
um, who is the editor of Accounting Today. We rate Daniel, don't we, Martin? We do very much so, yes. Um, the headline reads, Intuit projects up to 17 million new small businesses in 2022. Now, I saw a different stat. Um, I think it was in the last week where 636 new accounting firms had been formed in the UK in the month of January. Wow. Well, they've got 17 million new businesses to look after, so I think we might need a few more yet. <laughs> it was only a few weeks ago, Martin, we were talking about the insolvency tsunami and the sheer number of businesses that were going out as a going concern. They were no longer, so they're being replaced or pivoting around, reinvigorated. What's happening? Uh, out with the old and in with the new, yeah. Obviously, from insolvencies, you see Phoenix businesses, you see uh, from merger and acquisition, you see spin-offs um, and startups. So it is a fascinating time. Daniel sort of couches this by saying that the COVID-19 pandemic may be lasting longer than expected, but it hasn't dampened Americans' appetites for business formation, according to the accounting software developer Intuit. Usually we focus Intuit as a subject of our news rather than their reporting being the subject of our news. So it's nice to go from the other side this time. And he says that Intuit projects 17 million companies in the United States will be created in 2022. And this is due to, or rather according to Intuit's recent QuickBooks New Business Insights report, where 83% of people surveyed, and we don't have the size of that sample, but 83% of those who are the sample uh, intend to start a new business. And they said that the pandemic can actually accelerated their plans. That's an entrepreneurial explosion, isn't it, Martin? Mm, and I understand it as well. I understand that the, the pandemic has changed the way we live to such an extent where it changes the thinking about where the future's going. And do we actually want to do this? Do we want to stay in paid employment forever? Are we ever going to make our break, go out on our own and start our own business? And if not now, then when? And what if another pandemic stops us for another three years? So, you know, I, I can see it. Um, and he quotes here the report that says, when the pandemic hit, we saw an unprecedented number of new business forms as millions of people spotted new opportunities brought on by the new normal or reevaluated their priorities. Now, if we just stop here for a second, uh, he's quoting Alex Chris, Executive Vice President and General Manager of Intuit Small Business and Self-Employed Group in that statement. However, this new normal was a press phrase used when we started COVID-19 and nobody knew what was going to happen. Everybody decided that there was going to be everything was going to change. And I'm not convinced that that proves to be right. So brought on by the new normal, if I'd have written this article, I, I would have thought it brought on by the speculation of a new normal, because that's not what actually has happened. But Alex Chris goes on to say, now almost two years later, we're continuing to see this trend as 2022 promises to deliver even more small business growth and prosperity. And it's that last two words. Promises to deliver even more small business growth. Okay, fair enough. Accept that. Statistical, straightforward, easy to understand. And prosperity. That's an intangible. So where they got that from? So how do they know that it's going to bring prosperity? Is that because that by sheer probability, some of the 17 million businesses will be extremely successful? Is it that? Is it because there is some further study that shows that entrepreneurs become a lot more prosperous in self-employment than they do in corporate employment? Or is there something else at play? I don't know, but I'm fascinated by the use of it in the quote. 2022 promises to deliver even more small business growth and prosperity. So unless they're assuming that small business growth equals prosperity, that's a very interesting word to add on the end of their research summaries. And the virtual world that we're in, Martin, Zoom and Teams and everything else that's going on, there's a huge online shift, isn't there? Online sales now. We can almost do everything we used to do before in person. We can do that online. So 
the world's just got a whole lot smaller and a whole lot bigger, whichever way you look at it. Yeah, these things come in cycles. When I started my career and direct mail was the major way of marketing, of course, that was made redundant by digital marketing. And then once everyone got sick of spam email and sponsored ads, then there was a renaissance period for direct mail where you hadn't received a letter for a while. And it actually became a novelty to receive one for a while. So they had a renaissance. So yes, we're all Zooming or Microsoft Teaming or video conferencing in one way or another. And yes, there's a lot of things we can do now that we can't do remotely. But remember what that means. That means, therefore, that somebody somewhere are having very effective face-to-face meetings because nobody else is. Somebody somewhere is taking advantage of the fact that everyone stopped meeting together and used that as leverage. Question, Martin, just to round this out, what does it mean for the accounting practitioners do all small businesses see the value of an accountant? Just because there's lots of new businesses, does that necessarily create more opportunities for the accounting profession? The opportunity is the ability to educate what to get from an accountant. So when you have an existing client to whom you may have very poorly sold when you first brought them on board, the existing client's understanding of what you can do for the business and how much you charge is conditioned by their initial interactions with you. When a new business hasn't spoken to you before and may not have a preconceived notion of what an accounting firm can do, the field is white already to harvest, as the phrase goes, and you have therefore a blank canvas to paint a brand new picture of what an accountant can do for a business and start a business relationship from scratch. 17 million of them, in fact. Goodness. And uh, just finishing, looking at the article that Daniel wrote, and we'll put the link in the show notes for this. Uh, small businesses see the value. And they ask, does your business work with an accountant? Yes, internally, 37%. Yes, outsourced, 36%. No, 27%. So what did we learn from that figure? Well, straight away, we've got a quarter of the market there that needs educating. Yes. Straight away. Uh, never mind what we're doing with the 75%, you know, or 73% in that case. Well, someone just not seeing the benefit of working for an account, the better business decisions, as Daniel said, helping them save money, improving their long-term survival. If the accountants are not educating businesses, that's one thing. If the businesses are ignorant or arrogant, that's another thing. Arrogance is one thing, but if they're ignorant, even if they are ignorant, then who caused the ignorance? Who's failed to educate? Who's failed to get the message across? Who's failed to understand the need? So what's the ultimate message now for accounting practitioners listening, Martin, here? Um, understand that there needs to be room in the portfolio to take on new opportunities, better opportunities. There needs to be time set aside. You don't have to be at capacity or 100% recovery necessarily because we're about to move to a set of business owners who have the need of being handheld and maybe not have a generic understanding of what accountants can do. And therefore, your opportunity to become their advisor is on a plate. I've just had one final thought on this too, Martin. It's a little bit longer than we usually do, but there are startup accounting firms, as you hinted, and a lot of the larger firms, even mid-tier firms, are saying, we don't want to deal with startups. We don't want these micro-businesses, one guy out of a back bedroom, even if they might be a YouTuber making millions. So there's a lot of opportunities for startup accounting firms, one-man band, solo practitioners to mop up a lot of these juicy startup businesses. Well, now that you've said that, Rob, I'm actually reminded of an accounting firm in the United Kingdom who spoke to a startup business who had huge plans. And the quote that the accounting firm put to the business was too rich for them at that time, they felt. So an 18-month period went by, and the startup business got back in touch, of course, now no longer a startup business particularly, and had grown tremendously and had outgrown their initial cheap accountant and needed support and help. The initial quote was for, as I I recall, £950, so about $1,100, $1,200. A month? No, 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 a year. Okay. The one that they actually signed up 
was for just over 18,000 a year. Wow. Now, whatever percentage growth that is just goes to show tremendous opportunity. And when the business owner understands it, whether they get it, whether you educate them or whether they're educated by other means, they nevertheless come looking for that help. Make sure it's you they find when they go looking. And that is the news for your accounting practitioners. Go out there and make something up and look out for these new businesses. They desperately need your help, but you desperately need to educate them. Have a great day. Improve your practice while decreasing how hard you work to make your firm really fly. Really fly. The Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. Welcome to our special guest interview for today, and I'm thrilled to have with me today the CEO of Alineal Global, it's Mark Coziel. Mark, for people that haven't come across you, just give us a little bit about your background and your areas of passion. Thanks, Rob. And yeah, I'm uh, president and CEO of Alineal Global, second largest firm association in the world for accounting firms. Uh, I started there in August of 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, having left the AICPA, the American Institute of CPAs, after a 14-year career there as a senior executive. And I really came to Alineal a lot because I really liked the firms that were part of Alineal. And it also helped me with my passions, as you say, is to really help firms grow. I kid with our member firms that I want to double their dues in five years. And the only way I could do that is if they double their revenues so let's go. Let's get started. And, you know, we look at things like client accounting. I'm hugely passionate about that. It is just such a high growth area. And we're doing a lot around our member firms to make it happen. And it's really around new service lines. So, you know, ESG is being talked about a lot. We have a handful of our firms that have, have hired ESG related experts. So how do we get that to the general good, to the rest of the community inside of Alineal Global? We're seeing commerce increase every day, and it's just absolutely fantastic to see all the opportunities that are out there for our member firm. For our accounting practitioners listening that may not be so familiar with the space that is alliances, networks, associations, just give us a little flavor of that ecosystem, Mark. There's about 45 associations and networks out there, give or take. And, you know, a couple of those may be just kind of super regional in a particular market, like there may be a European only or a Asia Pacific only. Uh, but uh, there are at least 40 global associations and networks. And so how do you choose, right? Uh, it really is about the connectivity, understanding, what your client needs. Anytime I meet with a member, uh, potential member firm, I tell them the ultimate benefit to be a member is to help your clients because uh, your clients have international needs, they have national needs, whatever that may be. So, you know, everyone understands the big four. Well, the big four, each of those firms is a network. They are not one big corporate headquarters somewhere in New York or London telling everyone else what to do. Every one of those offices are different. They are under the same brand. So networks are commonly branded. Associations are associations of independent firms that can still keep their name, but be under this more common global brand when they need it uh, to be able to say that they are affiliated elsewhere. And that's what we are as part of a lineal. So that, yeah, there are a lot of choices out there. Of course, we're the best, but you know, beyond that, uh, and, and how we interact with each other becomes really important and making sure that our members are staying connected and being able to do what they need to do when a member asks. You know, the differentiator for me on an association was the fact that we have so many partners in our firms that have come from some other type of a network environment. And they say, you know, 
when we were in that largest of firm network environment and we would call and we're sitting in Luxembourg and we call the New York office, we'd never hear back from them. And we didn't have a choice but to go to that. Now in the association, not only is the, when we reach out to another firm, not only are they fighting to uphold the Alineal brand, but they're also fighting to uphold their own brand. And because of that, they work twice as hard anytime that we call another one of those member firms to be able to serve our client. And that is, to me, what I think is a big difference. Bring up so many interesting points there, Mark. And the association, I guess, would argue that this common branding, there's a more seamless conversation between the member firms when they pass a client over. But you're saying because you're not associated in that way, there is a need to work harder to make it work and, and that happen. Yeah. And not that it's harder work, but the firm works harder to satisfy the client. And so the networks are fine for people who want it. I don't want to, I don't want to say that it's not the right. And when you want that common brand and you want to be a part of something that, that is that common brand globally, that absolutely works. But we have a number of firms, 240 of them who have said that they they want to keep their own independent brand. They have built their own brand in their particular market. They're not interested in losing that brand identity as they go forward. And so, you know, there are choices, uh, choices for a lot of firms to make, to be able to say, you know what, we've gone as far as we can go with this brand. I want to be part of a bigger brand. And then maybe they go after that to, to, to join one of those, or it really is about trying to keep that brand and growing up. And we have alliances in the mix too. Are they a hybrid or are they something different, Mark? Yeah, they're a little different. You know, some of the alliances that, that I'm familiar with are in the U.S. where uh, some of the largest of firms uh, have created their own alliances that people can have access to that as a way for them to, to get teamed up with smaller firms at times. Maybe it's in a geographic location where they don't have an office. It's a question of whether or not they're providing a different level of resources. Some think that by having that alliance, they're getting access to some type of a national expert. But I would put any one of our national experts up against any one of those national experts in the same way. You know, and that's where I think joining an association or a network, I talk a lot about the fact that at Alineo, we have created a diversity of size, diversity of thought, diversity of talent. Because we have firms from, you know, in the smallest of markets, maybe they're only 500,000 in Africa, in some of the Latin America countries, up to a half a billion dollars, right? And so, you know, you have assets in, in, the, in the UK Nordics, you have Eisner uh, here in the US and, and Wifley, uh, and then we have firms all sizes in between and all different sophistications. So that actually, that diversity gives us the ability to service clients. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And in these pandemic times that we're in, obviously the world has opened up. We're all virtual now, so it doesn't matter where you're based. Are you seeing an increased demand for some kind of affiliation membership of associations and networks because people want international business? Yes and no. Um, you know, it. I don't know that it's changed any. I think the real drive of that really came out of the early 90s. And then as you rolled into the later 90s, early 2000s, we really started to become global. So as I practiced in the early 90s, you know, the firms I was with, they were in associations. None of us knew what that meant. Uh, occasionally, if we had a really hard question that someone didn't have the answer to, we would put it up into this kind of listserv thing. 
And we'd get 10 other firms say, yeah, me too. I have the same problem and no real answers. Today, it's become more sophisticated and it really is about the commerce. It's satisfying the client. It is the fact that I have this client sitting here in North Carolina where I'm sitting right now and they have a need in Germany, Russia and Malaysia that I need satisfied. How am I going to get that done? And that's really so it has become more sophisticated as firms grow. They start to grow into that a little bit. But at the same time, we have a lot of merger activity that's shrinking the number of firms that are out there. And you mentioned the SG, environmental and social governance firms predominantly would join a network or association for those international business opportunities and referrals. But you do a huge amount of lineal to share market intelligence and insights with your members to make sure they're truly informed to serve their client. We do. And I do think that that's one of the differentiators. One of the things I learned from 14 years at DICPA is that it's not about looking back at what we've done. It's looking forward at what's coming at all of us. And so the more that I can stay connected and Alinea Global can stay connected to the trends that are hitting us today and, you know, three years out, I don't even know if you can say five years, things uh, change so fast. As an example, you know, I was at a digital CPA conference here in the U.S. in December, and we were meeting with, and I had Jessica Cormier, our learning director there too, and we're meeting with the technology companies, some of which... I hadn't even heard of before that meeting. Uh, And these are early risers that we can say, okay, let's start to kick the tires on these a little bit. Let's get these piloted into other markets. I had a great conversation with one of the technology companies that's US-based, but is just ready to start rolling out into other markets. And so I've actually given them firms, our firms in Australia and the UK, where they can start to pilot. I know these firms are strong client accounting firms. This is a client accounting related product. I think they'd be great to be able to do that. And so that's the type of resource and connectivity we want. We want to be the R&D arm of our firms. We want to be the ones to say, ESG is coming. Here's what you need to know today. Here are firms that can help you if you don't know it, but a client asks and making sure, and I keep telling our firms, I don't ever want to hear that you lost a client because the client felt like they outgrew you. Never should that happen. We have the capabilities. And you talk to managing partners of firms big and small all over the world. What are they telling you is high on the list of priorities? (laughs) It's still pandemic related. Growth is incredibly possible. It is advantageous currently. However, I get the yeah buts. (laughs) And so when I start asking the questions about, you know, where are you on growth? How is developing an ESG practice? How is developing a IT assurance practice? Uh, uh, Well, we, we have it, we could grow it, but we don't have the people to staff it. And again, that's a resource limitations. We can figure that out. We have a couple of our member firms in India that provide outsourcing to our other firms. We're having a ton of conversation around that. Some of the bigger challenges for me are really the countries that English isn't their first language and trying to get them the outsourcing support. I'm digging and and clawing to try and find the right resources to help those additional firms too, especially in uh, German-speaking markets. We have a German-speaking group that gets together 
And the problem is that in the eyes of providers, that it's not a big enough critical mass is where they can introduce into some other things, unfortunately. So how do we make that happen? How do we drive conversation into technology vendors uh, so that all of our members can benefit from some of these great technologies? And you know, so having access in, in the non-English speaking countries and then for the for the rest of the world, it is just really trying to keep up with that growth and how do I get it done? And you've been in the accounting game such a long time now. Mark, you talk to good leaders, great leaders. What do you think separates the good ones from the great? I think it is really about strategic and it's firms that have separated their an understanding that I don't have a managing partner. I've said for years, partners cannot be managed, right? They don't want to be managed. Having a managing partner is herding cattle. We need CEOs in these organizations. And so when a firm has decided that they're going to take on more of a corporate model, they're going to have a C-suite, they're going to have a chief executive officer whose job it is each and every day is to worry only about the firm. Doesn't have client responsibilities or you reduce that as size happens. But they're focused on the growth. They're focused on the new lines of service and they're providing the support about that, holding partners accountable, all of that. That is the true leadership that I think has set it apart. I did a session. I had a panel of two of our member firms, Woodfleet and Eisner, two CEOs at Digital CPA. We talked about growth. And so one of the partners, Charlie Weinstein from Eisner said, when we look at things at Eisner, we look at a, a project or a particular item set and we say, can we automate it? If we can't automate all of it, can we automate some of it? If we can't automate some of it, can we outsource it or for them insource it, they have their own in the operation. And if we can't outsource it, can we find the people to do it? Those are, that is the hierarchy. And yet for many other firms, they have that completely flipped. We have to find the people first. And that's an exercise in futility because they don't exist. They And I've said time and again, I said, they're either unicorns or they're terrible uh, the <laughs> language, but in that case, how else are we going to get it done? I'm not going to let that be the excuse of why we can't grow. When you talk about the best leaders are CEOs and not managing partners, you're talking there about accounting firms needing to be more commercially minded, thinking more like business owners, operating more like businesses rather than professional firms. That's right. And it's hard. It's a hard shift. Growing up as a CPA, I loved my clients. Accountants love their clients. They'll do anything for their clients, even to the point of 90% of the time giving discounts to their clients <laughs> when they never asked for it. Indeed. Right? And so this pricing model and the fact that I have to watch my pricing and I have to watch my profitability, no one asked for that. They all understand we're a business and we have to act like one. And that's where I think pricing too Firms won't admit that that's a central issue currently, but as I have more and more conversations and we drill down, pricing is always coming up as an issue. And from your beginnings, you worked for a large accounting firm in Buffalo, New York at the very beginning of your career. How much has the accounting role changed over the years? Yeah, I think clients are more demanding today. Accessibility for clients is, is definitely more 24-7. Expectations have gone through the Expectations roof. Expectations have gone way up. I think the firms themselves, as far as the type of work that we do generally, that hasn't changed in 30 years. Well, compliance is compliance. Double entry bookkeeping's not changed, has it? That's right. Audit is 100 years old with no relative change. That's coming, and we're actually actively involved in that. And even this idea of advisory and being the trusted client advisor isn't new. We were talking about this 30 years ago. 
I went to results accountants, you know, Paul Dunn and Rick Payne back in the day. And everyone said, you know, that those programs, oh, they, they sold us a bill of goods. <laughs> and I said, you know, don't, don't shoot the pioneers in the back. Yeah. You know what? They started this. They were ahead of their time. And we need to be that trusted client advisor. And they they really got it started for me in my brain. And I, it's still here today. What separates the good accountants from the great? We've talked about the leaders, but those on the front end, the cutting edge, the practitioners dealing with clients day in, day out, there are some good, some bad, some average. Talk about that. I think it's the listeners. And it's those that are able to understand that they are not there to be compliant, they are there to help their client, whatever that client need is. We had talked about client concierge services years ago and saying that I, I don't want the client to wake up and have any concern on their mind. I want them to pick up the phone and call us first, no matter what it is, and we'll figure out how to get it done. Whether it's buying tickets to the local football match or some other event, who cares? You know what? I want them to call me first. And so it's those that understand that trust level and that they're in a business that's far beyond the compliance that they do makes them a better accountant, makes them a better business person. I used to say to my clients all the time as a trusted advisor, I said, look, we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about your business. And I say, I don't know as much as you do about your business. I'm never going to pretend that I do. I said, so I don't have the answers, but what I do have are the questions. And based on asking the right questions together, we're going to figure out what the right answers might be. And that's how we're going to follow up. I get that. A natural curiosity is certainly going to help trusted advisor. But we're talking here about accountants that need to move beyond mere technical skills and technical knowledge. So what are some of the skills they need in their toolbox to be trusted advisor? It is listening skills. It is having the right set of questions. It is being able to show up not thinking that you need to have all the answers. We're answer people. We're like, you know what? I want to be able to look it up in a regulation and be able to provide an answer. Well, even the regulations today don't have the answers anymore because they've all become so great. But even in you with your network, you're a great signposter. You know pretty much everyone and everything. So they need that network. They need that knowledge. It's not just being able to have the technical skills. So they've got to work on themselves, haven't they? Oh, totally, totally. Thank you for leading me to that point of what the answer should have been five minutes ago for me. But yes, <laughs> uh, you know, I think first and foremost is knowledge of self, right? And so I think leadership development, we're currently working on our leadership programs and kind of revamping them a bit. But at the core of that always is knowledge of self. And you, that's all we can control is ourselves. We can't control other people. But if we can improve upon that, work on our listening skills, work on our advisory skills. There's a great shout out to, to MindShop is a great advisory support tool that we offer to our member firms. We have a partnership with them. We incorporate that into our client accounting suite of, of what they should be offering to move from just doing the compliance bookkeeping and moving up into that trusted advisor and giving them the tools and skills to be able to do that. Do you see any difference between the American accountants, the UK accountants, the Australian accountants? Are they all a similar breed? They're incredibly similar. It's funny as you look at things, the Australians to me, and this is, I've known this for years, the Australians are the front runners, right? They are the cliff jumpers. They are the <laughs> ones that they're just going to be right out there in front. If there's something new to try, cool, let's go do it. And I think both the UK and, and the US we are all fast followers. So, you know, the first question we ask here in the in the U.S. is, well, who else has done it before we're willing to take that leap, right? 
And so, you know, I think that that's a lot of it. But the 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 type of practice, the opportunities in practice, they're all the same. Technologies are generally available in all of the again English speaking countries. It's in the uh, the non English speaking countries that I worry about trying to get those technologies, and we're working on some things for that. But I'd say that's be one of the big differences. So that's the accountants themselves. What about the professional institutes, the governing bodies of those different parts of the world? You know, and I used to in my role at AICPA, I'd occasionally meet up with. The Global Accounting Alliance, which uh, AICPA was a member of, along with ICAEW and uh, the Australian New Zealand uh, CA Association and a number of others. And it was basically the 11 largest countries got met together. The issues were generally the same. Regulatory, we'd all talk about the same things. The associations themselves, you know, one of the pieces that I've always appreciated about the AICPA, and I can't speak to how deep the other associations go, but at AICPA, really trying to help the member firm mine through these these business opportunities around, you know, funding support that the government was offering during pandemic, but also the technologies and bringing the technology world into the CPA world to make sure that we were connected and they were doing the right thing. 10, 12 years ago, uh, AICPA through CPA.com had the first ever uh, executive roundtable of the C-suite of the technology providers. At the time, I think there were about 30 uh, technology companies that met up. Now it's close to 60. They're all fighting to get into this meeting. And 12 years ago, we were we were shouting from the mountaintop that they all needed to work with each other to open up their APIs so that their technologies were talking to each other because that was a massive problem for many of our firms that they couldn't, they'd have to import, export, import, export, import, export, and they weren't connected. And now they're connected. And that conversation started 12 years ago. That's the type of thing we want to see globally as well. Is there any bad advice or bad doctrine you see in being dispensed in the accounting world? Anything you vehemently disagree with? Without uh, trying to tick somebody off, probably not. <laughs> you know, I, I did mention, I am hugely passionate about pricing. I don't think we have the pricing quite right. I think firms spend way too much time worried about efficiencies when they should be worried about effectiveness effectiveness trumps efficiency every time. And I really think that if we tried to be more effective, we'd be higher valued with our client. And so any of these tools and offerings around, we will make you more efficient, isn't necessarily going to make you more profitable. It's a quick stopgap. It's a minor instance of profitability, but then all of a sudden every partner out there, once they become more efficient, decide to drop their pricing to their client, and then we become less profitable. And anyway, I lived that through audit efficiency 25 years ago. And I heard the conversations with our partners who gave the yeah buts on audit efficiency then to say, well, you know, they're paying 20,000 now. Yeah, but we went through audit efficiency. We could do it for 18. No, that's not that's not what it's about. You know, you're supposed to those efficiencies are supposed to stay within the firm and this is the problem with focusing only on efficiency. Be more effective, be more valuable to the client. Let's get you back on another show to talk about pricing and business models in accounting firms. Uh, for the moment, you've been very successful in your career. You show no signs of letting up. Is there a personal philosophy for success that's guided you throughout that time? 
You know, what's interesting, and this is maybe, I, I think it's a U.S. thing, in the U.K. and Australia, the, the CAs and CPAs in those markets were coming from a noble profession, right? And there was this idea of nobility through it. CPAs in the U.S., so many of the partners we had all came from blue-collar backgrounds that, you know, or many of them, I should say. So for me, it was coming from a blue-collar background that for, it is the drive and sense of, I know what blue-collar looks like and I never want to go back. So I drive every day. In fact, when you talk about personal development, it is a personal flaw of mine. And I talk with my wife and my son about it constantly this constant drive it is i don't drive for success i drive so i don't have to go back i've i can see what the rearview mirror shows me and my eyes are on the road going forward because i know what the rear view looks like and so that's been the the, the key driver and it's to a fault at times because i don't always know when to shut it off and i think a lot of people have the same issue but i communicate about it i try and tell my family the why and we talk about it and I try and take a step back or two at times. Uh, and I think it's understanding the import, importance of that. It's not balance, it's integration of the work life. And I think understanding that and communicating that on both sides becomes really important. I always knew you were an inveterate learner and clearly you've got that passion for new knowledge and new skills. Is there anything you changed your mind on? I don't know if it's any one large thing. But I think the importance of the little things are, especially, and I'm learning this inside of a lineal where, you know, again, I'm fairly new in the position. So people are trying to learn me at this time. And the old me would have been, well, I'm just going to provide the answer, just go get it done. But the, you know, in this environment, because I don't have that trust level with the team or, you know, in the old days, my team would come to me, not with just the problem, but the problem and the potential solution. And then they would just kind of, it wasn't for me to make a decision. It was their decision for me to support and pulling back from that a little bit, because, you know, we all get busy and we just say, okay, yeah, just go do this. But understanding that and getting the team to take ownership in things, you know, I'm back to that again. I kind of forgotten that over the last couple of years and need to refocus on that again. If accounting firms are listening and want to talk to Alinea and want to be part of that, what questions would they be asking themselves that would say, yeah, I need to pick up the phone to Mark. I need to have a chat to Alinea and see what they can offer. What am I not getting that I should be worried about? Uh, you know, what are the technologies I should be looking at? What are the service lines that we have? How can you support my current clients? How can I interact with the other member firms to be able to help my firm grow? Uh, all of those things, I think, become critical in the, in the whys of joining a, a network. They're brilliant. We'll put your contact details on the show notes, Mark. Uh, let's finish by asking you what excites you most about the next 12 months, whether it's in the profession or your role. Well, first and foremost, it is the Buffalo Bills are absolutely going to the Super Bowl <laughs> next year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tough loss okay. this year for anybody who watches U.S. football. Yeah. Um, but I think more so, you know what, we've had some really high growth in the last 12 months. It is integrating all the new firms. We've added over a half a billion dollars of new firm revenue this year. On top of the growth of our firm, seeing, you know, I'm seeing some numbers, 15, 20%. It's been amazing. 
So it's integrating that. It is meeting with our commerce consortium, our technology consortium of how we're going to get all of these other things into the hands of everyone. And it's bringing all the live meetings back. We had a couple of successes last year. We are going to be back to global hybrid meetings. So we will have live with a, a version of virtual. And by the way, virtual is important too. People can't forget the fact that there are some folks who absolutely cannot travel. Having a hybrid meeting with a virtual component is not a convenience thing. It is a diversity and inclusion thing. It is being more inclusive as an organization. And we are very focused on diversity and inclusion. We will continue that. It's very expensive to offer both. We don't care. We're going to continue to do it. Amen to that. And leave us, Mark, with some words of wisdom or call to arms, if you like, to the accounting practitioner listeners here. What would you say to them to send them on their way and help them level up? Buckle up. It's going to be a ride. <laughs> and it's going to be a great ride. Where else would you rather be than right here, right now, being a professional inside of this? The opportunities are endless. And I say, all of us together, let's go out and get them because we support the business community, the small business community, like no one else can. So let's continue on that journey and let's all grow together. Wow, spectacular. Matt Koziel, CEO of Alineo Global. That's been great. Thanks so much for your passion and your insights today. And now we're continuing with our series on Here's What Works. These are very practical interventions for people in practice, the accountants, the CPAs listening, and that's the majority of our 20,000 audience. And telling them what really works from your tried and trusted work in the field, Martin. And what have you got for us this week? Big subject, small solution. This is on succession planning, Rob, and it's such a massive topic. There's no way with the best will in the world and even with my own ego rampant that we could cover succession planning completely in a five to six minute segment. But here's what we can do, guys. We can tell you about a practical application of a solution that will work for you. And here it is. I was working with an eight partner firm when I walked in on one of their board meetings about five or six years ago. And the partners were busily engaged on some sort of exercise or activity. And I said, what's going on? And they said, oh, Martin, you join us at the right time here. We are drawing up our partner avatar. And I thought, uh-oh, someone in marketing's got to them. What do you mean by partner avatar, guys? Exactly who we want to join the board next. Fantastic. Well done, guys. You are learning new skills. Now, what have you come up with? Well, that's where we're struggling because every picture we paint looks like the one people we've already got around the table. And we're just having a debate now as to whether we actually need different people around the table. And off this went, Rob. And the, bit, the bottom line of this was that the firm finally realized that the people they needed were the people who possessed the skill sets that weren't already present. Traditionally, historically in accounting, somebody serves their time. They do 25 years in the practice, they get promoted to partner because they've served their time, regardless of the skill set, their competence, and their commercial awareness. So they were struggling to design the people they wanted to join them and succeed them as partners. So we had a conversation. And I said, the more an accounting firm exposes its senior managers to its clients, the quicker the partners have got time for other things, whether that's marketing, whether that's golf, or whether that's discretionary time with the family. How much shadowing is going on in this practice? How much are senior managers being taken to client meetings? How many senior managers are being trusted to solve client issues before it gets to a partner? How many um, senior managers are being given an expense account to go out and actually wine and dine prospects? And of course, you know what I found wrong. It didn't exist. None of those things existed. So if an accounting firm wants to take the first serious step towards succession, it must consider these three things. Number one, 
Which of its senior managers does it believe are commercially astute enough or have the potential to be commercially astute enough to bring something new to a partner board? And it's those people that should be brought out on client meetings. And if a firm doesn't have those people, they've recruited and trained very poorly. And when you say bringing something different, Martin, that's not just in knowledge, skills, expertise. Could that be in diversity and a different outlook? It was certainly a different outlook. I'm not sure diversity in the traditional sense of the word is critical. It's that they improve upon the skill set of the existing partner board. So if nobody in the partner board can sell, and we've got a senior manager who can sell, great. If we don't have anybody who can price and a senior manager can price, great. It doesn't matter where, who they are, where they're from. It matters that they've got a skill set. So the first thing is look at the commercial awareness of the senior managers and start taking those people out to increase that commercial awareness with on, on client appointments, number one. And number two, look at the senior managers to see which ones are the natural conversationalists, networkers, intellectually curious. Give those ones a limited amount of chargeable time and an expense account to go and speak to people. Many accounting partners hate networking. Well, if you've got somebody in your ranks that loves it, leverage that. Leverage that because you're going to find that someone likes bringing new fees into the practice and you benefit from the new fees. And that's exactly what you're going to need going forward when you want to get out of the firm. So give them the responsibility and a little bit of chargeable time and let's see how they do. Let's trial it. Let's give them some expectations. Let's see what they do. And then thirdly and finally, you've got senior managers who you think can handle problems and can solve problems, whether it's face-to-face or on the phone. Great. Don't take the client's call. Give it to a senior manager. See how they handle it. Tell a senior manager ahead of time that they're given the responsibility of saying, don't worry if you fail. We believe in you. We believe you can handle these concerns. Any problems, I'm here to catch it. That's my job. Off you go. And and actually invest emotionally in the senior managers to demonstrate their problem-solving and critical thinking skills. Developing those three behaviors within senior managers, Rob, is the first accelerated step towards succession planning. Yeah, that's quality, Martin. And when you give people like that, opportunities to use their gifts, talents, strengths, skills, and appreciate them, that's your success in planning sorted because they want to stay, they want to move up, they want more responsibility, they're hungry for it. And that solves all of your problems in getting people to partner and beyond. Easier said than done always, of course. I'm sure any listener going, well, that's all very well, Martin, theoretically speaking. Well, no, this is a here's what works section. This is not theoretically speaking. This is what's actually happened in practice. I told you about this practice. We're trying to design their partner avatar. Where we went with it is we started to give the senior manager team more responsibility on a trial basis in certain areas. And if they failed, it was the partner's job to catch them. And if they succeeded, it was the partner's job to congratulate them and give them more responsibility. That's how you get your internal team wanting to buy you out. And just to finish this off, Martin, if accounting partners, senior people are listening and thinking, well, we haven't got any people like that, they're either not recruiting right or they probably need to get to know their people a little bit more to find out what they are good at. Absolutely right. It could be either of those. It could be the quality is in the practice already and is an undiscovered gem or recruitment strategy has been very short-sighted previously and we haven't recruited for the long term. We've recruited to fill a role, for example. And that's what has to change. But if you want to start succession planning, start with your own team. Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. And a big shout out to one of our newest commercial partners here on the podcast, it's Practice Ignition. Martin, how would you explain what those guys do? Businesses such as accounting and bookkeeping firms use Practice Ignition to one, help them grow, 
two, be more efficient, and three, create win-win client relationships. There are nearly 5,000 accounting and professional services firms around the world who use Practice Ignition, and they do so to win new business with impressive digital proposals, they engage clients with a clear scope of work, and get paid on time by automating payment collection. PI integrates with the leading business apps such as Gusto, QuickBooks, Xero, Zapier, and it does so to automate time-consuming tasks. That means less admin and more time for clients, Rob. We've got a special offer from our PI partners. Use the code AIR21 to receive 25% off all plans for your first six months. But that's 25% off with the code AIR21. And the link is info.ignitionapp.com forward slash AIP for accounting influencers. Practice Ignition, it's time to ignite your practice. Welcome to our expert interview for this week. I'm thrilled to have with me from Fathom, it's Darren Glanville. Darren, good day to you. Hey, Rob. Good to, uh, good to be catching up with you today. Nice to see you again. Darren, for people I haven't come across, you tell us about your background and your areas of expertise. Wow, where do I start? Um, so, so a lot of people will recognize me from the industry. I've been around for 20-odd years now. My, I started my journey back in uh, the early 2000s with uh, Solution 6 before moving on to Sage, CCH. Uh, more recently, I was at Zero. Uh, in its very early days, uh, up until 2014, then moved to the ecosystem. I've worked in practice prior to joining Fathom for about three years and then joined Fathom in November 20. And you've seen the accounting fintech software industry evolve over the years. These are interesting times, aren't they, for fintech and software? Absolutely. I, I think there's no better time to really be an accountant. We've not had the level of technology that we've had previously. I think there are so many opportunities out there for firms. I think there's so many small businesses that are passionate about what they do. They're looking for great advisors. When I think back over, over my years and, and working with many practices uh, about how to transform their backend uh, systems and processes through things like practice management, accounts and tax systems, through to you know how we can really change and transform that client side through distributed architecture and, and data through tools like Xero and QBO. Um, through to now, you know, how can we really position advisors at the forefront of those relationships? Um, so I think there's no better time for, for us to be an accountant. As an accountant is one thing, but in the fintech software industry, serving those accountants, there's a lot going on there too, isn't there? Uh, huge. I think, uh, again, you know, for many years, it was, it was the realm of the big boys um, when we look at that. And now, you know, someone who can really take an opportunity, see a problem, um, you know, come up with a great idea, get funding. Um, go to market, get investment, grow and scale those businesses. I think it's a really exciting time. We saw that again, you know, Zero did that back in 2006, 2007. Look at the size of where they are now. Look at some of the others that have come onto the horizon over the past five or six years that have really gone on to develop some great software that all is designed to, to make the lives of accountants and small businesses easier. And FinTech is a great space to be in. I think, you know, we're challenging the norms, we're challenging the status quo. We're solving those problems. We're making it easier for customers to get paid. Uh, we're making it easier for people to understand their business numbers, to plan for the future. It's, it's a great time to be involved in FinTech. So, Fathom, we're an international company. We're an international podcast, Darren. You're all over the world. Tell us a little bit about what Fathom do. We've been around since 2010. We, we probably hit the ecosystem uh, in 2012, and, and we've just been building out a, a company since then. 
Um, I suppose most people know of Fathom as a reporting tool, but this, there's just so much breadth and depth to Fathom as an application. Uh, we do KPIs, we, we do visual analysis. We're very visual in terms of the outputs that we do. Um, that's very key to what we do as an organization. Um, ultimately, our purpose as an organization is to give clarity and confidence to anyone who's a courageous business owner. Um, and that's really our purpose in life is, is to do that. Um, we've grown steadily over that time. We've, we've obviously have a, a base in the UK now. We have an office in Seattle, but being primarily headquartered out in Brisbane, Australia, um, also introduces us to a whole raft of other communities, other customers in different geos. We have globally around something like 60,000 customers in 170 odd countries. So we've been growing very steadily over that time. Our mission really is to, is to demystify those numbers and, and allow accountants to have deeper conversations with those clients and, and really pull that confidence from, you know, understanding their numbers better. I hark back, I mean, why, do, why is this so important for me? I remember reading an article, and I think we, we may have spoken about this before, Rob. I remember seeing a publication back in 2003, I was working with Sage at the time, and we'd just done an event and, and someone had literally left um, a small report, a printed report, on the side of our exhibition table and it was called the profitable and sustainable practice it was a publication by the icaw and bear in mind this is 2003 it was actually published in 2001 initially i read it in 2003 and i just started flicking through it and, and seeing some of the it was almost prophetic in in the way that it came out because it looked you know we just emerged from the dot-com bubble of the two, early 2000s you can still search for it on the internet which is good so i, I would urge people to read it for, for a little bit of nostalgia but in there, it talked about the rise of the use of the internet, how data would be distributed, how accountants and clients would, would work together in the same data. This is 2003. And one of the things it said in there that really struck with me was that firm, the firm of the future should be looking to de derive 60 to 70% of its income from type two or value-added services. And that really struck a chord with me that even though we were talking about practice management systems and getting people you know, filling in timesheets and, and producing accounts and compliance work, there was this, still this option for them to go further to really embed themselves as those advisors. And I suppose that's what started on my journey of looking at then, you know, how can I work with accountants to address the client side? How do we make that process a little bit bigger? So the opportunity then to come and work with somebody like Zero, for example, was too, too good a pull. Um, we were certainly selling a transformative approach at the time back in 2010, um, a very different approach. But still, if we can use that time more effectively, if we can process more work because we can access the data, we had awesome tools like for the first time bank feeds coming through and streamlining that process. And every small business I'd ever spoken to had hated doing bank rec. You know, working then through to the rise of people like Receipt Bank slash Dext as they are now, um, automating that, what could firms do with that extra time, that extra capacity? How could they really help them? And that's where I saw the rise of tools like Fathom and others that could really step into that process and, and help them. And I think that transforms into what we've seen over the last five or six years with firms really drifting into that digital space and calling themselves digital and becoming digitized and doing things in a very, very different way. I think that's, that's what I find most exciting about it. Give us a flavor of the reporting space, because that's come on an awful lot. As you say, Fathom's more than a reporting tool now, but that whole ecosystem has evolved, hasn't it? Look, yeah, I think it's, without a shadow of a doubt, it's one of the most hotly contested spaces. There's, there's so many providers, which I think in one way is, is, is testimony to there being a problem to solve. There are people in there. I, th I think that the difference is, is that people have a different outlook on what they should be doing. We ourselves probably see ourselves as a little bit more premium. And I think 
you know, I, I kind of look back to using tools like Zero. Now Zero have just updated their reporting center, which is great. We're getting great additions coming through. They've, they've recently announced um, some of the analysis tools that are coming in there, which are giving people an idea. Not every business owner, and this, again, pulling on my, my practice experience, when we used to have conversations with clients, not every client would understand the P&L on the balance sheet. It, it, it almost gave them, you know, hives just thinking about it. And the more we could we could turn that into a visual component, the better it was. Um, and I still remember talking to firms when I was at Zero, saying, "Hey, you've got the management reports in Zero. All you need to start doing to start people on that journey is just adding some commentary." I'll come back onto that because I think that's a really important point. But it was it was hardly ever used. There was a very very few firms would actually do it and do it well. So I think there is a problem there. We want to digest this information and present it. Um, we all do things in different ways. We're all good products. I think it ultimately comes back to how we value those clients and, and do we want to put uh, a premium, if we're selling a premium service, do we want to put a premium service in front of those clients um, that ultimately translates that? Um, I think there's, there's, there's other things as well we need to think about is, is how are our clients going to consume that information? Not every client wants to see it on a dashboard on a big screen. Some clients still prefer that aesthetic, that tactile approach of touching a report and seeing a report in their hands. But if we're going to produce that kind of stuff and those outputs, let's make it extra special. Let's not print it on, um, and dare I say it, 80 GSM paper out of the printer. Put it on slightly thicker paper. Put it on a gloss paper print. If you're going to show a chart, make it so that when you hand that to the client, the client touches it and that moment of, oh, wow, this is valuable. They don't just feel that they're getting numbers thrown at them. They're actually getting a condensed insights wisdom. And I think that's that's sadly where a lot of firms are going wrong is that they're selling the output of data and not selling wisdom. And I think there's a whole piece there that, that firms can really improve on. Those that are doing it are doing it exceptionally well. You're talking about some really interesting things here, Darren. And yes, accounting practitioners in the age of advisory, we know this downward pressure on compliance fees and the evaporation of that revenue stream for them. But we've been talking about this for a long time with accountants, haven't we? Would they nearly really need to get a grip on the reporting, start to tell the stories behind the numbers and add proper value to clients? Is that turning as fast as you want to that ship? There are, there are a couple of answers to that. I think one is it, it depends on where the firm is on their digital journey. I think for some firms who really want to take it to the next level, there are some considerations. I think one is who can deliver the service? Within that, there's, there's things like recruitment, retention of staff, training of staff, learning and development. That's the individual accountant, the talent that you've got, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think, but I also think there's an education there as well. I think, you know, traditionally, because of the, the, the race to the bottom in terms of compliance, you know, you have to have a really super efficient compliance process in order for you to drive advisory. I really get et up when I hear this, people say, oh, compliance is dead. It's not. It's, it's, it's living, breathing. It's the fundamental bread and butter of every practice. The, the challenge then becomes of how do we shift out of the compliance, out of that deadline-focused approach into planning, execution? Um, how do we start to then embed advisory and how do we then start to do that with reports? So I think, A, you've got to have the right team. You've got to have the right skill set. It's, it's not necessarily someone who's a great technician. It's almost, and you, you, I'm sure you can relate to this, it's about business development, you know, asking open questions. Uh, you know, talk about where are you now? Where do you want to be? What's the gap? How do we help you get there? What are the three or four things that you can start to think about? Who's going to hold you accountable? What the what are the outcomes you want? Um, and you'll remember as well, you know, many years ago, there were, there were programs like, I don't know, the Accountants Bootcamp and where people focused on business development skills. 
And I almost feel sad that we've lost a lot of that in the industry. No one's really focusing on those business development skills. You've got a great talent pool of very talented younger accountants. They're great with social skills, but they're not being taught some of the business development skills that can really expo- you know, open up those conversations, but they're great with soft skills. So I think you know, a lot of firms could benefit from working with people around business development. Just, I'm not asking them to go through any of the Franklin Covey sales courses, but you know, maybe working with external providers just to give them some basic understanding of open questions and how to, to really open those conversations up. But, but the whole point of reporting tools is that it gives you the, the structure, the mechanism, the talking points to make these questions easy. Again, but does it? And I think this is where what we've seen and what I've certainly experienced is you have various stages. You've, you've got, you'll see this online, the DIKW model. Data needs, needs context before it becomes become an insight. Okay. So data in and of itself is meaningless. You're just showing values, measurements. You, you've got to add some context to that. Once you, you have insights, you can then start layering in the insights that turn it into knowledge. Once you have the knowledge, then you start putting in the actionable stuff that turns it into wisdom. And this is where I think a lot of firms are getting stuck at the data part, right? but they're not layering in the context. They're not layering in the, the insight. They're not layering in the knowledge or the wisdom. The successful firms are doing all of that. They know when to approach it and they know the sweet spot of when to hit it. I think that's the, that's the key to it. And it's not just about reporting. It's about KPIs. It's about analysis, benchmarking. And for us as a platform, forecasting now and then driving that up. But it's, it's about outcomes and then measuring against those outcomes. And you're talking about accountants flipping from looking backwards to looking forwards, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I think it's it's so important to understand that that DIK, that W model, the, the data insights, knowledge and wisdom model, and work through that. And what are you actually positioning? What are you pitching? Clients won't want the report. They can probably pull some of that off themselves. What you're, what you're selling is, is your knowledge, your wisdom to help them get the outcomes that they want. Yes, that makes good sense. And when you look at the reporting tools, different platforms out there. It is competitive. What questions should an accountant be asking themselves when deciding on a, a partner, a tool, a platform, an app to do the reporting and the forecasting? That's, that's, again, that's a good question. I think you've got to ask the questions, does this fit with how we want to approach this? What do I mean by that? Does it give us the flexibility to provide that information on screen, real time, or is it just uh, we're, we're printing an output? We have to think about how our end users are going to consume that. Now, not everyone's going to have, you know, if, let's, let's say, for example, if you're in someone with a, in an FMCG environment, white goods, online sales, um, e-commerce business, where they're looking at, and they, they've already nailed their KPIs, they know the number of, and we, we've seen it, you know, we've all been into those businesses where we see the TVs on the wall blasting out dashboards. Then Fathom's probably not for you. But if you have a client where you're trying to sell a visual product aesthetically, a highly aesthetic product that fits with your brand, that you can then start to layer in some solid advice, knowledge, and wisdom. And you want to then start to strategically plan ahead for the next two, three, four years, then Fathom's a great tool for that. One of the things we introduced last year, and I don't want to turn this into a sales pitch, but we introduced micro forecasts. And micro forecasts for us was um, a way in which you could take a, a main forecast grid, your traditional three-way cash flow, take an event like a, a, we we're taking out a loan, we want to hire, we want to purchase an additional asset, or hire an individual, and then you could then create an individual standalone forecast for each of those events that you wanted. What we then looked at was how do we then use that as a visual aid 
when sitting with a client. Fathom is designed very much to sit with the client and go through these scenarios. So you're actually giving them the ability to see the decisions they make before they make them. That's the difference. So what we could do, and I would urge anyone to have a look at this online, take a trial, go and have a look at it. You have three or four key events that you want to run through your business over the next 18 months. What we then do is we allow you to slide those events to the dates that you want to start hiring that person, purchase that asset, take that loan out. And the numbers spin in real time, showing you the impact of that. Is it going to be positive? Is it going to be negative? Is it going to leave a shortfall? You can then make the appropriate decisions. So accountants are now sitting with their clients and saying, look, here are three or four options. When is the best time to do this? Clients feel empowered because they're seeing the future almost around that and saying, actually, I can make a decision comfortably because I can see the impact. And if I need to, I can then group those together in a best case scenario, a worst case scenario, or we can start planning for some risk in the business. There's so much to consider, though. There's so many variables in making big decisions like this. We're in a VUCA world, aren't we, Darren? The volatility, the uncertainty, the complexity, the ambiguity. So you can't get it all in a dashboard or a forecast, surely? No. And I, I think this is the other thing that, that I often hear is you can automate processes. People say, oh, well, we need it automated. I, don't get me wrong. Look, the rise of, of machine learning and AI is amazing. It's doing things for us at a process level that we've never had the ability to do. I'm actually all for you know, empowering AI and machine learning. However, you can automate a process. You can't automate a relationship. And I think that's the part that accountants need to tap more into is, is the FaceTime with a client. Yes, the tools are there to do with a lot of the heavy lifting, and they do. But ultimately, we want to look at into someone's eyes when we deliver sometimes great news, but equally, sometimes you need to deliver bad news in the right way. What do accounting firms get wrong, Darren, when it comes to reporting and analysis and forecasting? That's a great question as well. I think one of the things that I, I, I see now is those firms being successful don't adopt a spray and pray approach. They know who their targets are. They know who their ideal clients are. And I think that's half the battle. I think what I've seen, if anything, over the last five years um, is very successful firms are becoming more like SMEs. I'll give you another example of that. You know, we're not talking of multi-partner firms, equity partners, where you know a partner has all of a sudden got responsibility for being the marketing partner. We're actually seeing firms now adopt a more of a, a CMO approach. They're bringing in external people with a CMO, a CRO. They're running themselves like that way, and I think that's having a, a, such a positive effect. We only have to look at people like the guys at Flinder and others to to look at you know the way that they're they're, they're working and the, the way they're challenging the status quo. So I think it's the same is that we, we've really got to get into that gear of understanding who our ideal client customers are. We're not trying to, in, in the words of Jordan Belfort, we're not trying to sell a pen to somebody who doesn't want to buy a pen. Let's be targeted with this because we do that. There are always low hanging fruit within a firm. Um, so we should be approaching those. We should be looking at the ICPs that we have. They're the ones that are going to value this. What I think is interesting is when we start to really analyze an accounting practice client base, they may only, you know, initially when they start offering MI as a service, for example, they may only pick two or three clients out of a client base of 500. Are you telling me there's not another 10 or 15, 20 clients that warrant that service? So stop thinking of this as, as a cost and think of it as an investment you're making to protect that revenue off and other services and position it in the, in the correct way. I think that's the danger is that we, we just kind of, you know, assumption kill is the killer of, of most business development. I, well, my clients wouldn't want that. Well, have you asked them? That's the first point. So I think you yeah, definitely move away from spray and pray. Look at your ideal client pro profiles. 
sell to who's going to value it and look at your top clients and how you can protect that. Because if they feel that you're not offering the services um, and someone comes along and says, yeah, I can do that, you may well lose a client. What's coming up in the future of your space? Not fintech software generally, but reporting and forecasting where you're very squarely based. Look, I, I think what, what keeps me awake is as an organization, as an industry, as, a, as an ecosystem space, how, how do we continue to re, be relevant? How, how are our customers going to interact with our platforms in the next five years? As, as people grow, scale, age, what is, what is that? You know, if we think of succession, those, those, those family members are going to take over businesses now um, that might be in their you know, late teens, early 20s. When they take over those businesses, how are they going to consume those services? Bearing in mind how far technologies come. Are these guys going to suddenly reach out to their smart device and say, hey, what's my cash flow? What's my break even? Technology is going to keep evolving. We have to stay pace with that. We have to deliver value for money in our products. We have to deliver great experience, client experience in, in our products. We have to provide excellent customer support. But that's the kind of stuff that keeps me awake. I remember being part of a, a round table once up in, up in Scotland one evening, and we were talking about this. And we, we were saying, if you look at somebody like IBM and what they've done with Watson, you could put the entire back catalog of corporation tax cases into Watson's memory banks. And therefore, you know, how does a firm compete with Watson if somebody types into Watson, how do I minimize my CGT? That's the stuff we've got to be thinking of is, is how do we stay ahead of that or at least tread water with, with that kind of technology? A lot of firms don't have the purse, the war chests that some of the bigger firms have. So how do we remain relevant? How can we stay that? I think it's the same for app vendors. We've got to continuously develop our products. We, we don't want to just launch a feature because that's what everyone else does. If we're going to launch something, we're going to launch it because it's, it's better. It's, it's, it's a little bit further ahead. But that's what keeps me up is how are people going to consume those services? How do we help our clients and partners stay one step ahead of that so that they're positioned at the front? This is great, Dan. Final question. What advice would you give to the accounting practitioners that want to level up and offer better value to their clients in the complex, challenging world we find ourselves in, particularly when it comes to availing themselves of tools like Fathom? I think there's a number of things. I think, you know, as we said before, one is segment your clients truly understand we've spent so many years building out our practice management systems and i'm sure you know many listeners in this will have the categories of their clients from a through to d sitting there but leverage that segmentation do they fit your if you have an ideal client profile do they fit it if you're looking to start leveraging reporting start people on quarterly reporting and then move them to an annual service there are so many different ways you can really do this you know, I often think of when you go for an airline and you, and you get that ticket, you know, you're flying out to Brisbane. How good a feeling does, is it that when you get to the gate that someone says, actually, no, I'm going to upgrade you. Can you imagine if you upgrade a service, a client to a service for a few months and deliver that? Yes, there's more work, but you're doing something because it, you're going to get value from it. Um, there's so many ways you can position this. I think, again, look at the team, look at the people in your organizations that want to do more. I don't think... When we talk to accountants, they want to help people. They don't just want to sit there doing um, year-end accounts and bookkeeping. People become accountants because they want to help. So look at the team. Who, who has a, an affinity for doing this type of service? You've got to train them. You've got to invest time with them. This is important to you. We want to be given the right advice, but you can do it in such a way that whatever advice they give, they're not going to sink the ship. Um, they should be mentored through that and coached. And I think that's where a lot of firms have fallen down. I think the other thing that we can do here is um, – really start to, to price these services better. 
uh, and value them and introduce them to the right people at the right time. Avoid bottlenecks. And I think that's another reason why a lot of firms have struggled to do it is because generally it's the people at the top that can deliver this service and they need to break free of those bottlenecks. So many great ideas and suggestions here. Darren Glamble, that's been terrific. Thanks so much for your passion and your insights today. It's been welcome. Thanks very much, Rob. This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. This has been the Accounting Influencers Podcast. If you've listened to us at 1.5 speed, we've taken up about 40, 50 minutes of your time, but given you almost an hour and a quarter of continued professional education and development. For you accounting practitioners out there on our radio style daily show, where we help you to level up, bring in the business that you need, build up your influence and build the career that you want in your accounting world. And we serve the accounting fintech practitioners, the software vendors that sell to and through the accounting profession. A little recap of what we've done on this Monday episode, which as you may know, if you're a regular listener, contains all the four key segments that we then run as standalone episodes Tuesday through Friday. And then we have a bonus episode on the Saturday from the client's perspective, generally around why they didn't buy. So what have we covered this week? We kicked off with... Can accountants serve 17 million new businesses in 2022? We talk about the news that there are more new businesses starting that need accounting advisors, they need bookkeeping help, they need automation, they need software, they need all kinds of things. And yes, we're in challenging times. And in a previous episode, we've talked about the insolvency tsunami and how many businesses have struggled and actually gone into liquidation. But there are many new opportunities, many new firms starting up. Some of them are going to be really big and they need you. Then we did an interview with Mark Coziel from Alineal Global. He's their CEO. Fantastic guy, super smart, been in this game a long time, knows everybody. Gave some great insights on leadership, what it takes to run a global organization with accounting member firms. And he's just got some great insights on what makes the good accountants and the good accounting firms great. We tackled a really important subject in our Here's What Works segment. We're looking at succession planning for accounting firms, how you bring in people through and bringing them up to replace those aging partners and those baby boomers that are moving up and moving on. And finally, we interviewed Darren Glanville from Fathom Reporting. They're an international organization and Darren had some great insights on what reporting means for accounting firms and how that turns into great advisory services. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you to our commercial partners as well. We would love you to share the show, review the show, and get in touch with us. Go to accountinginfluencers.com and learn a little bit more about our Accounting Influencers brand. It's up to you to do something with what you've learned. So go out there, be brilliant, shine a light, and show the world what you're capable of. Have a great day. This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett.